right. God bless you guys. Good to see you. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 6. Revelation 6. Now, last week we started looking at chapter 6, and then as I was going over my notes, I forgot a bunch of stuff. <laughs> so I'm going to try to incorporate some of that in tonight. But we started looking at chapter 6 last week where Jesus, pictured as a lamb, steps up to the Father's throne, chapter 5, and takes the scroll from the Father's right hand. Now this was the scroll written on front and back and sealed with seven seals. As we have pointed out, we believe this scroll is the title deed to the earth. And as we've already begun to see, when the Lord Jesus starts breaking the seals on the scroll, well, various judgments are poured out upon the earth and its inhabitants. Let's review quickly from last week. Verse 1, John says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. As we noted from our study last time, the rider of this white horse is the Antichrist. Even though some commentators identify him as Jesus Christ, we said last time we don't believe this rider is the Lord Jesus Christ for several reasons. First of all, this rider is wearing a crown, but the Greek word is stephanos, which is the crown of a conqueror. Uh, the laurel wreath that they would put on the head of a general as he came home from battle with his troops, having been victorious, having conquered over uh, Rome's enemies, they would give him a victory parade and put a Stephanos crown on his head, signifying that he was a conqueror. But the crown that Jesus is seen wearing in the book of Revelation chapter 19 is called a diadem. That's the crown of a king, the crown of a king. In fact, he is wearing many diadems because he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. Secondly, this person is pictured carrying a bow. Well, you know that every time Jesus is seen in the book of Revelation, the weapon that he is seen with is a sword. A sword. Now, we did make a, a point to say last time that this bow might not represent a weapon. It could represent a covenant. If you wonder what we're talking about, you got to go online and listen to last week's study because we went into it uh, in pretty great detail, okay? Could very well signify uh, a covenant. First time the word bow appears in the Bible, it's in Genesis where God is promising to never again destroy the earth with a flood and as a sign of the covenant, he puts a bow in the sky, a rainbow. So you can go online, listen to the study from last week if you're interested in that. But the bottom line is, guys, this rider isn't Jesus Christ, the true Christ. He's a false Christ. In fact, he's the ultimate false Christ known as the Antichrist. Of course, he doesn't come on the world scene riding an actual white horse. It's symbolic. It's the Holy Spirit's way of telling us the Antichrist will appear on the world stage initially as a good guy. He'll be a man of peace, using diplomacy to bring about world peace. So... Uh, he will come on the world scene looking like a good guy before he reveals himself to be the ultimate bad guy, uh, a bloodthirsty military tyrant. 
this is no doubt why he is pictured riding a white horse. He is trying to counterfeit the coming of the true Christ, who will be riding a white horse when he returns when he returns to establish his kingdom, as we see in Revelation chapter 19. The Antichrist will probably, and we're reviewing still from last week a little bit, but the Antichrist will probably come to power during a world crisis. Possibly uh, the crisis that is mentioned in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, which sounds like it includes some kind of limited nuclear exchange. You can read those chapters. We'll no doubt look at them as we progress in our study in Revelation. But you can check those out on your own, okay? Um, if that is true, and he rises to power uh, alongside the events of Ezekiel 38 and 39, well, in the face of the unmitigated terror that the people of this world would be experiencing, if we're correct, and there is some kind of a limited nuclear exchange, the unthinkable will have happened. I mean, we all know countries have nukes, but we've never actually used them on each other. We did in, you know, Second World War, but that was it. Uh, but the unthinkable, the world has lived in fear of nuclear war since nuclear weapons were invented. Uh, but something called MAD kind of kept things in check, which stands for Mutually Assured Destruction. The idea is that you know, if they fire nukes at us, we're going to fire nukes at them, and we'll both be wiped out. So that's a deterrent to even go down that road, okay? But if a, a limited nuclear exchange of some kind takes place, the world is going to be brought to uh, just into a, a place of, of abject terror. The unthinkable has happened. We, we, we're going to blow the planet up. You think global warming is a problem? People are worried about global warming. Now you have a real threat to worry about, okay? Uh, worldwide nuclear annihilation. So they're going to be terrified. They're going to be screaming for someone to take control. We have to come together. We can't be separate nations anymore. We have to be one nation, one world, family. And so they're going to be screaming for someone to take control and restore peace and stability to the earth. Enter the Antichrist. I think he's around today. But I, I, he's not going to rise to power, I believe, until after the church has been raptured. But uh, as we have pointed out, we think of anti, anti, meaning against or opposed to. But the Greek word could mean in the place of, in the place of. In other words, this man will be a false Christ presenting himself in place of the true Christ, the true Messiah. And guess what? Much of the world is eagerly awaiting for his, his arrival. They don't think he's a, a false messiah. They're looking for the coming of what they believe to be the true messiah. Well, we know that the Jewish people, they have been looking for their messiah ever since God promised them he would send them a, a messiah. Now, they have rejected Jesus for the most part, although we do have Jewish brothers and sisters I'm not going to point the finger at anybody, but we have Jewish <laughs> brothers and sisters who have received Jesus and are, are what is called Messianic Jews. Some call them completed Jews. And God is working among the Jewish people, and they are getting saved. But for the vast majority of the Jews around the world who are Orthodox, who even believe in coming Messiah, many are secular who don't believe that, um, but for those who believe in Messiah, 
is coming. They're, they're looking for him to come soon. And, um, but Jesus said in John 5.43, I have come in my Father's name, and you did, not you did not receive me. But another will come in his own name, and him you will receive. Did I say I've come in my Father's name? Yeah, Jesus, I've come in my Father's name, you, would, you didn't receive me. Another will come in his own name, him you will receive. Talking about the Antichrist. Prophesying about the coming of the Antichrist. So the Jewish people are looking for a Messiah. What about the Muslims? Well, the Muslims, the Shiites at least, are also looking for a uh, Islamic Messiah. They call the Mahdi. The Mahdi. Muslims believe that uh, this Mahdi is uh, also uh, going to be known as the twelfth Imam. Imam. According to the Shiites, the twelfth Imam disappeared as a child in the year 941 A.D. And uh, when he returns, they believe he will reign on the earth for seven years before bringing about uh, a final judgment and the end of the world. Here's where it gets kind of interesting for us who are Christians. Um, these folks, these Shiites, believe that Mahdi's going to come and he's going to have an enforcer with him, a lieutenant, the prophet Jesus. The prophet Jesus. In one of their holy books, it reads, and I'm quoting, the Mahdi will come with Jesus, son of Mary, accompanying him. Imam Mahdi will be the leader, while Prophet Jesus will act as his lieutenant in the struggle against oppression and establishment of justice in the world. Here's the, the kicker. This Islamic Messiah, this Mahdi, is going to come with this person, a sidekick, uh, an enforcer, a lieutenant, our Jesus. At least they think he's our Jesus. But they teach when Jesus comes to the earth with this Mahdi, he's going to kill Christians and Jews. So uh, obviously they have a Jesus, but he's not our Jesus. Um, how about the New Agers? How about the New Agers? Well, they believe that a Messiah is coming as well. All right, And he's going to be the latest reincarnation of the Christ spirit who will come to usher in the New Age upon the earth they believe there is coming another leader a messiah an avatar whatever they choose to call him who will be the latest reincarnation of the christ spirit for the new age which is the age of aquarius they believe messiah jesus was the reincarnation of the christ spirit for this present age the age the piscean age right we are in the piscean age right now under the uh the authority kind of of the last reincarnation of the christ spirit jesus christ but there is another one coming who will be the latest reincarnation of the christ spirit for the new age which again is the age of aquarius i remember back in the early 80s when i was a young pastor of course we were just enthralled with prophecies all we were talking about was prophecy right and so i had been sharing with people about this coming uh, you know, Antichrist, who some were going to believe is going to be the reincarnation of the Christ spirit and so on. And uh, a couple days later, a full page, I didn't put it there, a full page ad in the Chicago Tribune appeared. And it said in bold print, how did it go? It said, um, Maitreya Buddha, the last reincarnation of the Christ spirit is here. And he will reveal himself in the next few weeks well we thought here we go we're, we're out of here okay this is it all right 
Well, that was 40 years ago, and we're still waiting to get out of here. But our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed, right? I mean, wow. Well, 40 years, that's God's grace. I mean, look at how many people have gotten saved. So I, I rejoice in that. But um, there are many people who have been conditioned to believe that a Messiah of some kind is coming. Now, the devil's been working very hard for years and years, centuries, uh, getting people to think this way because he was laying the groundwork for the coming of the Antichrist who was going to come symbolically riding a white horse. That was the Holy Spirit's way of saying he's going to come looking like a good guy, right? Last week, good guys ride white horses. <laughs> Bad guys ride the black horses. So this guy's going to come, you know, and, and he's going to come on this. The devil's been preparing people for the coming of this Messiah for many years. And now I believe the world is ripe to receive a global leader who will unite the world and bring peace, at least for a while. Y'all remember what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.3? When the people of this world say, finally, peace and safety. Oh, utopia. We're in the new age. Isn't this glorious? Then sudden destruction will come upon them, like labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. That's talking about Revelation 9, excuse me, 6 through 19, which we are studying right now. Some would ask at this point, why will God let so many people be deceived by this man? That's a good question. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 2. You know, everyone wants to blame God for bad stuff. The uh, insurance industry even has a phrase, act of God, which means when a when a tree falls on your roof and smashes your roof in your car, it's an act of God. Well, no, it's not an act of God. You know, why does God get the, the, the blame for everything, okay? Maybe it's just a rotten tree you didn't take care of. I don't know what to happen, but, you know. But um, why will God let so many people be deceived by this man? Well, here we go. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 9. The coming of the lawless one. That's a title for the Antichrist is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Listen, because they, because they did not receive the love of the truth, they refused to receive the gospel, that they might be saved. Verse 11, and for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Back in Revelation 6, verse 2, John said, And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat in it had a bow, and a crown was what? Given to him. A crown was given to him. Not a crown he won in battle. The battle comes afterwards. This is a crown he was given by the people of the world, and then he went out conquering and to conquer. Again, guys, the people of this world will beg him to be their leader. He doesn't take uh, the leadership position of the world through military conquest. Uh, they thrust him into this role. Why? Again, there's some kind of a global crisis that is taking place. What it is, we don't know. There's been different uh, possibilities that have been kind of uh, hinted at, you know, uh, a global collapse of the finan financial system, you know, 
maybe a, an EMP electromagnetic pulse that wipes out, uh, you know, uh, electricity and, and throws people back into, uh, you know, the 1800s. Um, you know, there's there maybe some kind of a plague that sweeps the planet. We don't know. Maybe a combination of some of those. All we know is there's something that's going to happen that the world is going to want this man to take control. And I think it could very well be the scenario of, of Ezekiel 38 and 9. I mean, that, that's very uh, plausible. But even though the world thrusts him into this role as leader of a new world government, the one behind the scenes that actually gives him power on earth is the devil. Now, of course, God allows it all. God's in control of everything, okay? Uh, but God allows it because he is judging the world. But um, the one who actually gives this man, this Antichrist, uh, the power to be this world leader is the devil. You don't have to turn to it, but Revelation 13, verse 4 it says, so they, the people of the world, uh, who are not saved, because many will get saved during the tribulation period, but uh, so they, the people of this world, worship the dragon. That's, a, that's a, a, name, a name for Satan. Who gave authority to the beast, the title for the Antichrist. And they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Now, Remember, as we study Revelation chapters 6 through 19, and this is some of the things I didn't bring up last time, but I really think we, we need to at least get them out there, okay? I, I don't want you, it's so often, this is a very complicated book. It's a rich book. It's a blessing to know it. Jesus even said at the beginning, uh, there is a special blessing waiting for anyone who reads and understands the events or the things written in this book, Right? So God wants us to read the book. He wants us to know the book. If we're going to know the book, let's know the book, though. Let's not charge in and start pulling things out of context like a lot of people do and, and, and give a very confusing picture in people's minds. I don't. I've been studying Revelation for 40 years. I haven't got it all nailed down. But I'm going to give you what I think is the best uh, look at what's happening. And I could be wrong. That's why you need to pray and Seek God and study on your own. But as we uh, study Revelation chapter 6 through 19, we're going to be looking at the judgment of God being poured out on this Christ-rejecting world. That's right. Um, the Antichrist being the first judgment of the tribulation period. Now that's important because the Bible says God will not punish the righteous with the wicked. God will not judge the righteous with the wicked. Now, if the Antichrist is the first judgment of God, and I believe he is, I believe the world wants a man like this to lead them in God. So God says, here you go. You don't want my son? You don't want my son ruling over you? You want, you know, uh, somebody that is incons consistent with your own evil desires? Well, then here you go. He's the first judgment of the tribulation period. And if he's the first judgment of God poured out on this world, the church can't be here because the church will not see the wrath of God. It's very clear. And there's a whole lot of other reasons which we looked at we studied chapter 4, why the church will be gone before the Antichrist is revealed and becomes the world leader. Okay, 
But this judgment that we're going to be studying in chapter 6 or 19 is broken down into a series of three successive judgments in the form of the seal, trumpet, and bull judgments. These judgments together will purge the earth of the usurpers and the earth dwellers, which we've talked about, preparing it for the return of Jesus to establish his kingdom and also known as the kingdom age, the thousand years, okay? Now, guys, it's hard to know exactly how these events will unfold chronologically. And that's because as John presents them, sometimes he overlaps or repeats some of them. You say, well, why would he do that? Because it's a very common Hebrew technique. In Jewish writings, it was very common for a writer to give a quick overview of a, of a series of events, but then to zero in on something in that series of events to amplify and to bring out in greater detail so the audience can understand really what the author is trying to get across. The, the overview is to set the context. Context is everything in, in writing, especially if you're study the Bible. You've got to know the context. So they sketch out the context, give an overview, and then they zero in on something uh, in that overview of events that they want to bring out and amplify, because uh, that's really what they're, they're wanting to, to kind of bring out for the reader. All right? um, for example, in Genesis chapter 1, the Holy Spirit, working through Moses, gives us a quick overview of the entire six days of creation. But then in chapter 2, he focuses in on the sixth day to amplify the creation of man. Why? Because man is the focus of the story of redemption, which is the theme of the entire Bible, the redemption of mankind. In Matthew 24, when Jesus' disciples came to him and asked him, what will be the signs of your coming in the end of the age? In verses 4 through 14, the Lord gives them a quick overview of the entire seven-year tribulation period. But then starting in verse 15 and running through verse 31, Jesus goes back and focuses on the last three and a half years to expand in greater detail what was going to happen in that particular part of the tribulation period. I throw those out so that you understand what is common among Jewish teachers and writers. So that when we come to Revelation, what John does is very common. And that's why it's kind of hard sometimes to know if he's continuing on and this is fresh material or if he's kind of stopping now and going back and amplifying, right, something uh, to, to give us a clear picture of what uh, is going on. So um, let me just say again, the events we're going to be studying in chapter 6 through 19, uh, 6 through 19 seem sequential, and, and many of them are. And yet as we study them, I think we'll see that they are not arranged in a strict chronological order. The pattern of the book of Revelation in this section, um, chapter 6 or 19, is this. After the sixth seal judgment, there's a break, a parenthesis called chapter 7. After the seven, sixth trumpet judgment, there's a long break, a parenthesis that stretches from chapters 10 through 14 to review and to amplify what has taken place on the earth 
during the tribulation period up until this point. Kind of like John lays a bunch of stuff out and gives us a little breather. Wow. <laughs> Give us a second to catch our breath, John. And during that little parenthesis, he's emphasizing some things uh, that, you know, will give us a better understanding of what has just happened, okay? But understand, as we mentioned last time, guys, the seals, remember the six seals, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the seven seals, seven seals, uh, encompass the entire period of the tribulation, all seven years, culminating with the return of Jesus Christ. Uh, it seems best to understand these seals this way. The first four seals uh, seem to take place in the first half of the tribulation period. The fifth seal seems to stretch between the first three and a half years on into the second three and a half years or from the first half of the tribulation period into the second half. And the sixth and seventh seals seem to take place during the last three and a half years, which are called the Great Tribulation in Revelation 7 through uh, verse 14. All right? As I've already pointed out, the seventh seal contains the seven trumpet judgments, and the seventh trumpet judgment contains the seven bowl judgments. So again, uh, I believe that the seven seals contain all the judgments of God poured out upon the earth all the way up till... Uh, the return of Christ to the earth. Now, guys, something interesting that you may not have uh, heard, but uh, the unfolding of the seven seals, and again, in my mind, they encompass the whole seven years, and, uh, and, and as we've just said. But the unfolding of the seven, seven seals seems to parallel Jesus' own prophetic message describing the end times and his return uh, as... Uh, recorded in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. Why don't you do this? Keep your finger in Revelation 6 and go over to Matthew 24. Don't worry about Luke 21. I really want to focus in on Matthew 24. Keep your finger in both of those places. I want to um, move back and forth for a minute. All right. So the first seal. Let me uh, kind of subcategorize these uh, seals. The first seal. Antichrist rises the power. Revelation 6, 2. And I looked and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5 is the parallel. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Now remember, in Matthew 24, verses 4 to 14, he's giving us a whole overview of the last seven years. In Revelation 6, the seals give us a little more of a detailed look, but it's the same period of time is the idea, okay? Uh, it's interesting that in chapter Revelation 6, verse 2, it talks about one writer, the ultimate false Christ. Here in Matthew 24, Jesus mentions that many false prophets and many false Christs will arise. I don't believe the Antichrist is going to remain alone for too long. I think he's got a message. I think, well, I know he's going to present a new religion at one point. And I think personally that new religion will, will be built around something called the lie. You want to know what that is in detail? 2 Thessalonians 2, 
uh, verses 9 to 11, go online, listen, we went into great detail, all right? Uh, Romans 1.25 talks about the lie. 2 Thessalonians 2.11, the lie. And it connects it to the Antichrist coming and his false religious system that he uh, brings to the earth. What is this, the lie? There's a lot of lies out there, right? Of course. But definite article, this is a very special lie. A very special lie. Well, what do you think it is? I think it's the same lie that Satan told Eve in the Garden of Eden. That lie has been developing and growing and for 6,000 years. It was in his embryonic state in the Garden of Eden. It has been growing for many years. As Jesus likened it, it has become a great tree uh, in which all the demons of the earth have taken refuge, all the false doctrines, right? Uh, but this is the mother of all lies, okay? And, uh, and I believe it's the lie the Antichrist is going to bring to the earth. And, and, and so he's going to have a lot of converts. I don't have time to get into all that tonight. Uh, we probably will touch on more in the weeks to come. Uh, but he's going to have a message. Uh, and the message is that man can become like him, like a god. And so people are going to start lining up to, uh, you know, who believe that lie. And they're going to become an army of false Christ. But he'll be the, the, the main guy, okay, the main guy. Second seal, wars and rumors of war, Revelation 6, 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. Couple this with Matthew 24, starting with verse 6. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Verse 7, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Let me stop there. The third seal, famine. Revelation 6, 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the, the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat in it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Matthew 24, end of verse 7, and there will be famines. Fourth seal, word, worldwide death and destruction. Revelation 6, verse 7. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Couple that with Matthew 24, the end of verse 7. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Luke 21, verse 11, and there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilence. Of course, all that's going to lead to death, much death. Fifth seal, persecution and martyrdom. Revelation 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar 
the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. These are tribulation uh, saints, tribulation believers, who are now being martyred by the Antichrist. Verse 10, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Matthew 24, verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. The sixth seal, great cosmic signs. Revelation 6, 12. I looked, and when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig drops uh, its late figs when it, when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Matthew twenty four twenty nine. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Luke 21, 11, And there will be fearful sights and great signs in the heavens. And finally, the seventh seal, the final judgments. And guys, the seventh seal reveals the final cataclysmic judgments, including all the devastation. Uh, from the trumpet and bowl judgments. During this time, the gospel is going to be preached to everyone on planet Earth. And then Jesus will return. Matthew 24, verse 14. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Matthew 24, verses 30 and 31. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. So that's just a quick overview, okay? I want you to, to see how they line up, okay? Uh, because... The seals encompass all seven years of the tribulation, and so does Matthew 24, verses 4 to 14. But let's look at these seals a little more closely. Again, Revelation 6, verse 2. John said, And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now again, as we've already stated, the Antichrist is, is in view, uh, view here. And the Antichrist will come as a man of peace and will do what no man has ever been able to do, and that is bring about world peace. And especially I'm thinking about peace in the Middle East between the Jews and the Muslims. <laughs> Anyone who can pull that off is going to be really held in high esteem. In the minds of many, that will be a tantamount to a supernatural feat, all right? that he's able to bring peace 
between Israel and the surrounding Muslim nations. I mean, that's incredible. Uh, this peace will be short-lived, though, as we've already said, because uh, it will then be followed by God's uh, ultimate wrath being poured out. But, uh, you know, some people imagine that this uh, coming world leader is going to be some kind of a hideous monster because he is Satan's man. But I think that just the opposite will be true. As someone has said concerning this man, he will have the oratorical skill of a John Kennedy, the inspirational power of a, of a Winston Churchill, the, the determination of a Joseph Stalin, the vision of a Karl Marx. He will have the respectability of a Gandhi, the military prowess of a Douglas MacArthur, the charm of a Will Rogers, and the genius of a King Solomon. He's going to be, as some would say, the whole enchilada. I'm telling you, he's going to have it all. He's going to probably be incredibly good-looking. He's going to be incredibly articulate, charismatic. And when you couple that with the fact that he's going to have real a supernatural power given to him by the devil, he's going to be unstoppable, or so it seems, or so it seems. And that's why so many people will want to get behind him and worship him eventually because when it says in verse 2 he went out conquering and to conquer uh, don't let that confuse you as to his role as a man of peace i think one author put it well he said and i quote his conquest will be a cold war victory a peace won by agreement not conflict even as the final doom of the world approaches, Antichrist will promise a golden age of peace and prosperity. In gratitude, the world will honor him and elevate him to a position of supreme leadership. But both the accolades and the peace will be short-lived, end quote. All right, the second seal. Revelation 6, verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out. Let me stop here. Uh, the color red is often associated with terror and death. Think of the red dragon in Revelation 12, verse 3, uh, or the red beast in Revelation 17, verse 3. All right, just so you understand that. Again, verse 4, so another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. Guys, what's in view here is merciless worldwide slaughter. Now, some have suggested that if the Antichrist is the first rider who brings a temporary, you know, the first rider, the first seal, first rider, right? Riding the white horse. If the Antichrist is the first rider who brings a temporary time of peace to the earth, they say, well, the second rider could be the false prophet who takes peace from the earth. Now, it is true, Revelation 13, 15 tells us that when the Antichrist, uh, when the false beast, uh, you know, uh, sets up this image of the Antichrist in the Holy of Holies, and uh, the Antichrist begins this, officially begins his new religion, anyone who will not worship the Antichrist is going to be killed. That is true. But I think at this point, second seal, I think 
we're not there yet. We're not at that point yet. It's going to come a little later, all right? So what's going on here? Well, I think it's possible that the first and second writers are one and the same person. Well, how does that work, you say? It could be talking about one person who manifests qualities that are completely different from one another. Let me say this. Remember King Saul. When God uh, appointed Saul to be king of Israel, remember when they went to find him, to bring him, to be anointed, what did he do? He, he ran and hid. He wasn't worthy. He didn't feel like he could do the job. He was humble. Okay? But after he became king, after a while, he became like a, a psychopath. I mean, he got more and more violent and psychotic. And uh, people say, I don't even recognize the guy. I mean, king, I mean, Saul, before he became king and after, two different people. Well, no, he's the same guy. But yeah, manifesting himself in two seemingly entirely different people. Um, we know the Antichrist initially comes as a man of peace, uh, bringing about global peace by uniting the world in a one-world government, government consisting of ten nations or regions. Think of global nations, okay? Or ten regions ruled by ten regional leaders, whether they're called kings or prime ministers or presidents. I don't know what they're going to call them, but uh, they're going to be the leaders of these ten regions together, making up a one-world government. That's how it's going to start in the beginning. And the Antichrist, as we're going to find out later uh, in Revelation, the Antichrist comes across as the quintessential diplomat. Uh, he really doesn't come across like he even wants to be. He's the leader of the world, but he, you know, he's, he's kind of shying away from that, uh, that role. Okay? And uh, you know, even passing on authority to others and sharing the power and, and so on. Looking like just a total diplomat, right? But we learn in the book of Daniel at one point, he overthrows three of these rulers and seizes power and becomes a military tyrant. Now, you might be thinking, what happens to cause him to turn and show his true colors? Well, we learn from other places in Scripture and here in Revelation. Someone tries to assassinate him. Not everybody on the face of the earth who's an unbeliever is going to love this guy. Now, this was really driven home to me when I was recovering from knee replacement and I read a little bit of the history of, um, uh, of World War II and how that not every German loved Hitler. In fact, I think there was something like 15 attempts to assassinate him during the course of his reign. Okay, uh, None of them were successful because God wasn't finished with this man, all right? Uh, in fact, I think the last attempt to assassinate him, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that's the book I was actually reading, uh, a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Christian, okay? and uh, But he got uh, caught up in this plot to, to have a Hitler assassinated, and it uh, failed, 
Well, that caused the German government, just a few days before uh, the Allied troops took Germany and, and the war in Germany ended, uh, to assassinate or to, to kill Bonhoeffer. Um, I don't know. I, I, you know, I'm inclined to say at this point, uh, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You know, remember what David said of King Saul when, uh, when David was hiding in the cave with his men and I guess it was they were, uh, Saul came into the cave to relieve himself and they were kind of hiding in the recesses and one of David's guys says, uh, David, this is your chance, kill him. He's gotta, you got him caught with his pants down basically. You know, get him, kill him. And David says, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. If God wants to kill him, he can let him fall in battle or give him some kind of disease. I don't, I'm not going to, I'm going to let God, vengeance is, belongs to God, right? Now, I'm, I'm not saying that's a universal principle for every situation. We'll have to see. I don't know. I'm just throwing these things out to you that someone is going to try to assassinate this guy. How do we know? Well, first of all, in Zechariah chapter 11, verse 17, we read, Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. Now, this is a, a, a title or an indicator of the Antichrist. This is prophesying about the Antichrist, calling him the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall completely wither and his right eye shall be totally blinded. Some people believe, and I'm not a doctor, but I've heard this, that uh, if a person uh, has a, maybe a gunshot wound to the right side of the head, uh, it'll so, somehow paralyze the left. I don't know if that's true, but it seems like somebody is going to maybe uh, try to assassinate him, maybe with a gun, shoots him in the left side of his head, his right eye goes dark, his right arm is paralyzed. You couple that with Revelation 13, verse 3 where John said, and I saw one of his heads, and this is just kind of presenting him as a beast, uh, but uh, when I saw one of his heads as if, as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So I believe that this assassina assassination attempt takes place right around the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation period. Everything God does, Satan wants to counterfeit and to try to take glory away from God. Okay, God the Father has a son, Jesus Christ. Uh, the devil presents his version, uh, the Antichrist, right? Um, of course, Jesus Christ died and three days was resurrected. Uh, the Antichrist looks like he dies and in three days he is resurrected. I don't believe Satan has the power of life and death. But he's a good counterfeiter. And it doesn't matter if this guy is really dead. The world's going to think he's dead. That's all that matters. And three days later, he's going to miraculously rise from the dead, so to speak. At that point, the um, kind of the adulation, uh, people enamored with this guy, it now moves into full-blown worship. And that's when I believe he, uh, he rises up, and I'm getting ahead of myself, he comes back to life, and um, he first thing he does is kill the two witnesses. Read Revelation 11. From that point, he goes straight to the temple in Jerusalem, 
stops the sacrifices and offerings to the one and only true God, puts his image in the Holy of Holies and demands to be worshipped as God, buckle up. Jesus said, when you see the abominations uh, spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place to the Jewish people, don't even go back into your houses to get clothes, flee to the wilderness. Because at that moment, persecution will arise against the people of God, such as the Jewish people have never seen since the beginning of time, nor will ever see again. Now, others will be caught up in the persecution, but the focus is going to be Israel. We'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 12, okay? But um, at this point, people are like, wow, we believed in this guy before, but now he's, he's God. He's God. He's no doubt about it. He came back from the dead. He has to be God. And now that's when the people of the world really uh, begin to worship him and follow him like he can't be beaten. And we talked about that last time. But at this point, guys, I believe this counterfeit resurrection takes place because Satan himself, not a demon, but Satan himself enters into this man and possesses him bodily. Only two people in history that the devil thought were important enough to not leave the possession of these two individuals to any of his lieutenant demons. But he felt he needed to possess these men himself. One was Judas, the other would be the Antichrist. Revelation 6, verse 4, another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another and there was given to him a, a great sword. Um, it could be a reference to a satanically possessed Antichrist. Somebody who looks completely different now, or acts completely different than... Uh, I, I think he's shown his true colors. Um, but, you know, this guy's going to look like a totally different person now, okay? But again, the world has got to get rid of all the people that won't get in line. They are so enamored with this guy. They're so full of worship for this man. Whatever he says is gospel to them. Whatever he wants them to do, they will do. And he, at this point, becomes a bloodthirsty military tyrant, and he sets out that anybody who will not worship him or follow him must be destroyed, must be killed. And his followers line up behind him to carry out these evil deeds. That's why there's going to be so many people martyred during this period of time now, starting with the second half of the last seven years, as John sees them in heaven. Okay, because the angel who's taken John on a tour of heaven shows them this group of people uh, so innumerable they can't even be numbered who have been beheaded, are wearing white robes. And John said, uh, uh, the angel says to John, who are these? And John says, I don't know, you tell me. He says, these are those that came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes of the blood of Christ. These are martyrs from the great tribulation period. I mean, it's going to be an incredible slaughter throughout the world of anybody who will. Of course, a lot of folks who have gotten saved are going to hide out. And they will be alive when Jesus returns. They have hidden, escaped the Antichrist. Many Jews down at the rock city of Petra, we've talked about that. We'll talk about it again. But... Um, the world is going to eliminate all those who are standing in opposition to this man because the goal is world domination, world peace. And they're going to achieve a good measure of that. But as Paul said again in 1 Thessalonians 5, 
verse 3, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction is going to come upon them, like labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Guys, there can be no and there will be no true peace on earth until the Prince of Peace comes and sets up his kingdom. And we're going to be studying that. You can skip ahead to uh, to Revelation 20 and read verses 1 to 6. But as one author says, the world's desperate desire for international peace will serve as the bait for this satanic trap where, you know, he's convinced people, those that won't follow me, you got to kill them. And it's going to be a bloodbath, okay? One historian, as we bring us to a close, one historian gives a parallel from history, okay? He said, and I quote, It may seem incredible that the world hovering on the brink of final disaster could be so totally deceived. Yet that is precisely what happened on a smaller scale before the outbreak of the most devastating war to date, World War II. Adolf Hitler spelled out in detail his plans for conquest in his book Mein Kampf, published more than a decade before before World War II began. Yet incredibly, the Western Allies, particularly Britain and France, persisted in believing Hitler's false claim to be a man of peace. They stood idly by as he reoccupied the Rhineland, which had been demilitarized ever since the end of World War I, thus abrogating the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, Then annexed Austria, the Sudetenland, and Czechoslovakia. Despite uh, desperate to appease Hitler and avoid war, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain met with the Nazi dictator at Munich in 1938. Upon his return to England, Chamberlain triumphantly waved a piece of paper containing a worthless promise, a worthless pledge of peace from Hitler, which he claimed guaranteed, this is now Chamberlain's words, he waved this ridiculously uh, empty piece of paper in the air, peace with honor, peace in our time, which he claimed guaranteed peace from Hitler's own Mouth, he promised this piece. Um, when Winston Churchill, one of the few that were never taken in by Hitler, rose in the House of Commons to declare that England had suffered a total unmitigated defeat, was shouted down by angry members of Parliament. Uh, uh, Winston Churchill got up and said, "Are you guys kidding me? You have just, you have just been suckered." I'm paraphrasing. Okay, <laughs> peace in our time. This is not going he's not going to give peace. He's just waiting to gain more strength to wipe us out, right? But they shouted him down. And uh, members of parliament, the author says the, the deception was nearly universal. Almost everyone misread Hitler's intentions. Only after he invaded Poland in September of 1939 did the allies finally acknowledge the truth. By then, it was too late to avoid the catastrophe of the Second World War, end quote. Winston Churchill said, those who fail to learn from the mistakes of the past are doomed to repeat them. Those are wise words and very true. In an article I just read today, and I'll just quote a part of it. You can go online and read the whole thing. The title was, Gina Carano Was Right. The Disturbing Parallels Between 2021 America and 1932 Germany. The author says America's political, political situation right now carries disturbing 
similarities to Germany just before the Third Reich. And it isn't people on the right only. It isn't only people on the right who resemble uh, Nazis. A lot of rhinos, a lot of never-Trumpers out there, just as bad, okay, in what they want to accomplish. But he gives three areas. I'll just read these quickly. Uh, politicizing everything. He said to the Nazi party, everything was political. Does that sound familiar with some of our groups today? The party subordinated uh, every sector of society and every human endeavor to its broader political and social agenda. Number one, politicizing everything. Number two, violence as a political tool bolstered by the state. Even when they did not officially hold power or command uh, an electoral or command an electoral majority, Nazis were able to use violence to hurt their enemies and to help themselves, uh, benefiting from friends in high places, bureaucrats, judges, business leaders, Apple, Twitter. No, that's later. But you, you get the idea who critically helped them avoid consequences for breaking the law. Anybody remember Hunter Biden's laptop? How that was conveniently stuffed under wraps, right? Nobody, you know. Um, we're seeing it. We're, we're reliving it. And number three, group guilt, conspiracy theories, and blood libel. The author says a central myth for the Nazis was the stab-in-the-back claim that Germany's defeat in World War I and all its subsequent problems were due to treason from within, especially by Jews. That sounds interesting, right? The myth was false, but crucially, it exploited real facts to exert a hold on the public. The leaders of the 1919 communist uprisings in Germany, like this, the uh, Spartacist uprising in Berlin and the short-lived Bavarian Soviet, Soviet Republic, were substantially Jewish, which Nazis exploited to promote the idea of a Jewish plot that led, led to the loss of World War I. For the Nazis, it was never enough to oppose communism. The party routinely, routinely blasted the concept of Judeo-Bolshevism, conveniently merging its most hated ideology with a scapegoat ethnic uh, group. Um, and uh, the author says, from this it's easy to draw a parallel to the endless witch hunt for white supremacy or systematic racism in every sector of American life. Uh, he goes on to say, uh, Jim Crow was real, and for a century after the Civil War, racism was a very real part of American law and American society. But now, though, but now, though institutional racism is a little more than a conspiracy theory, uh, laws at all levels of government prohibit racial discrimination against blacks, and often uh, with severe penalties for doing so. I find this very interesting because... Um, the Democratic Party has taken the events of January 6th, which I believe was a protest that got out of hand. I do think it was infiltrated by Antifa. Uh, and I think we have proof of that as one uh, Antifa uh, thug, uh, uh, what was his name, John Sullivan, uh, on his Facebook was inviting people to the Capitol on that day because he knew Trump was going to have a rally. They wanted to infiltrate this uh, rally and create great harm Maybe they were even coordinating with some political leaders uh, then to turn around and blame the whole thing on uh, Trump and Republicans and now 74 million people. They're laying the groundwork that we're all domestic terrorists. And this is, this is what, the, what the author is saying the Nazis did. 
yeah, the, the Jews participated in some uprisings. But the Nazis jumped on it and made the Jews uh, uh, guilty of every wrong thing. And, and they had to be put in concentration camps. They had to be destroyed. Is that what's coming for conservatives and Christians in America? I don't know. I don't know. I think we need to pray, right? Let me just end by saying this. For the Antichrist to unite the world in a one world government, the America as we know it, America as we know it, will have to fall and be replaced by a whole different America. That's why they hated Donald Trump so much. Because he was a nationalist. And they were all globalists. And they had globalists for a long time. And they thought Hillary Clinton was going to be the next uh, leader to lead maybe the, the world and the America into a global, probably a global government. Okay, Globalism was the goal. Donald Trump came along with his America First agenda and nationalism and made people proud of their country again and and uh, patriotic and so on and they hated him for that they hated him uh, because he was he was standing in the way of their little utopian uh, dreams okay but we know donald trump was a parenthesis whether or not the parenthesis will continue in 2024 for another four years we don't know i doubt it i don't think we're going to have that long but anyways the America as we know it, if there's going to be a global community, a one world government, the America that we know and love is going to have to fall and be replaced with a globally minded America. No borders, no national loyalties. We are going to be a world community. We have to support the world community. We're not going to be exceptional anymore, just subordinate to its global masters. One of the most widely read books of all time is The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, which was written by Edward Gibbon in 1788. In that book, he gives five reasons why the great Roman civilization withered and died. Let me just give, i just paraphrase these, okay? Um, first one was undermining the dignity of the home. In other words, the nuclear family. I don't know if it's still up there, but if you go on Black Lives Matter's website, they will say one of their goals is the destruction of the nuclear family. Why? Because in Marxism, you can't have people more loyal to family than to the government. And that's why they hate Christians, because where our loyalty is not to state, it's to God. And that's why we have to go too. We're standing in the way of this global utopia. And uh, so you got to attack, that's where it all starts, with the family, the nuclear family. Destroy it. Destroy families. Uh, make it anything people want it to be. You want to you have two guys uh, as fathers and have children or two moms uh, as uh, mothers and, uh, you know, as two women as mothers. and that, Or you want to have a combination of three husbands. Uh, whatever little grouping you want to make, that's a family. That's not what God has said. But destroy and that's what happened with Rome, uh, the Roman Empire. Um, number two, higher and higher taxes. Higher and higher taxes. What are these taxes used for? Well, the author says uh, they were spent uh, spending of public money for free bread and circuses for the populace. Rome realized if you want to keep people happy, if you want to do some nefarious things, you got to keep people happy. So just keep feeding them with bread and circuses. Circus is entertainment, right? 
keep them fat and ha happy, and, and they won't bother you, right? So what are we doing now? The government's throwing stimulus checks our way, right? Of course, it doesn't really matter because they're moving us towards hyperinflation, which is what that one seal is all about. Work all day for enough money to buy yourself enough bread to eat for the day. Don't touch the oil and wine. The rich are going to always have plenty. What do they care? They want to burn the whole system down anyways. It's Cloward and Piven. You know, burn the whole thing down and rebuild it in your socialist utopia image, right? So give the people money. Because in a little while, that paper money is going to be worth nothing anyways. That's what happened in Germany. They experienced um, runaway inflation. Uh, and uh, it was, there was a joke back in those days that a man uh, walked up to a store with a wheelbarrow full of cash, set it outside, went into the store. When he came back, the cash was on the, on the ground and the wheelbarrow was gone. <laughs> you know, the paper money wasn't worth anything, right? Hyperinflation. Number three, what brought down the Roman Empire, another thing was um, a mad craze for pleasure. They became obsessed with pleasure. Um, sports, um, sex, uh, all kinds of things. Just sexual pleasure, material pleasure, everything. Just, you know, gluttony and, uh, and, and homosexuality. It just... It, 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 somebody said that Rome was not conquered from without by the Huns. They rotted from within and just collapsed in on itself. We are seeing that in our country. Number four, while Rome was decaying from within, they were still building these great military armaments because they thought their enemy was without, from without, you know, the other surrounding nations, didn't realize that the greatest enemy at that point was within. And again, the immorality was just eating the, the, the empire away. We, you know, we, we pride ourselves in our military prowess, and I thank God that we are a strong country militarily. Um, but that's not going to do any good if the country completely collapses from within through all the godlessness and, uh, and perversion and so on. And number five... The decay of religion. Faith fading into mere form, losing touch with life, losing power to guide the people. The church of Jesus Christ is becoming nothing more than a, a, a distraction. A distraction. Now, of course, you have good, solid Bible teaching churches sprinkled throughout the country. I'm talking about, though, in general. Of course, mainline denominations have been dead as a doornail for many years. What about the evangelical church? Well, that's been slowly moving away from the word uh, and is, is, is becoming more and more man-centered, man-focused, messages, feelings, oriented. Uh, all these things are causing the... And Paul said it, that in the last days, uh, people in the church would no longer want to hear sound doctrine from God's word, but would gather to themselves teachers because they had bitching ears, gathered to themselves teachers who would tell them what they want to hear, not what they needed to hear. I just take comfort in knowing that as um, Elijah, um, in the face of all the apostasy in his day, and uh, remember how he ran down 
after he was used by God to destroy the 850 prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth, and then uh, Jezebel, they were her prophets, uh, threatened to kill him uh, by this time tomorrow. And he ran down in the, into the wilderness and hid in a cave. Okay, And uh, God appeared to him in a cave. And uh, they had a little conversation. Okay, And uh, Elijah was feeling sorry for himself. He said, Lord, I'm the only one who loves you. I'm the only one left. I'm the only one who's loyal to you. And what did God say? I have seven thousand I have kept seven thousand. Now out of a nation of three million, that wasn't a lot. It was called a faithful remnant. I have seven thousand that has not bowed the knee to Baal or kissed his image. God always has his people. I don't care how bad things get. And we can look around and we see the fall of who we thought were great men. And things come out that their ministries, they were not the men we thought they were. It's disheartening. In some cases, it's devastating. But it hasn't changed Jesus. Jesus hasn't failed us. Jesus has not lived a double life. Jesus Christ is the faithful and true witness. Let's get our eyes off of man and get our eyes on God. Because that's, that's the only thing that's going to get us through this, right? One author said to end this, he said, The oft-heard warning that history repeats itself has an ominous meaning in the light of what we just read. So, God willing, we will continue uh, next time. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us out of the darkness into your marvelous light. Give us grace to walk as children of light. Lord, no one's perfect. We are not perfect this side of glory except in your eyes because we're in Jesus, but physically, mentally, emotionally, we're not perfect people. But that doesn't give us the right to live hypocritical lives. Give us grace, Lord, to want with all of our hearts to honor you in the way we live, the way we talk, the way we think. And we need your grace to do that, Lord. Pour your spirit upon us afresh. That, Lord, we could rise up as more than conquerors and go forward in these last days, finishing our race strong. That you might, that we might hear you say someday, well done, good and faithful servants. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.